Amen. Well, good morning. morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Sincerest thanks to Brady and Diana, as always, for leading us in worship. Beloved, we had a week of sadness for the HHBC family this week as member Lloyd Roberts went home to his heavenly reward. He and Norma were such a blessing to us. They were shut-ins, as you know. Those of you that went caroling with us in December would remember visiting them. Of course, his his widow now, Norma, suffers from dementia, but she's always being well cared for, and she always has a smile on her face when we visit, and she sings along with every word when we go caroling with her. And Lloyd was always positive. He, he loved the Lord. He loved his work that he was able to do as a chaplain. We will miss him. But we say goodbye with hope. And we look forward to seeing Lloyd again. And we will fellowship. And we will remember. As we have often said, beloved, the gathering of the church, the fellowship of the spirit that you experience when you come on a Sunday is just a preview of heaven. It's the closest thing you get. It's not a sunset, it's not Diana's desserts, it's gathering together to give praise to our King. It's learning who He is that we might love Him more. It's gathering to worship. That is what awaits us in eternity. So we're reminded that if we don't love church, if we don't love being with the people of God, you won't like heaven one bit. So we mourn with the Roberts family this morning, but it is steeped in joy. We know our Redeemer lives, and because our Redeemer lives, Lloyd is a follower of Christ. He is as alive as he has ever been. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we completed our two-part series titled Clouds Without Rain, which consequently also completed our 12th chapter of Mark. After Jesus having warned the people, having warned his disciples to what? To beware of the scribes, to beware of those who preside over a false system of religious practice and belief that had really permeated all of Judaism. We saw repeatedly that the Judaism of Jesus' day was apostate, lock, stock, and barrel. And as Jesus' last time, as Jesus' last time preaching and teaching in public, Jesus took this opportunity to once again shine the light on these charlatans and these hucksters that were preying upon those who didn't know any better, loading them down, and even more specifically, consuming and devouring widows. In the same thread, we witness Jesus in the treasury, and in walks the very example and subject of Jesus' teaching, the widow. A quite famous widow in scripture owed to many teachings on the widow's might and the widow's offering. We opened up that scene last week going quite against the traditional grain of teaching that this was some kind of lesson by Jesus on sacrificial giving. And while that is so commonly taught, we saw that the more traditional teaching of the scene is an incredible imposition on the text. Unless the lesson is to give 100% of all you have, to give up on life, to go home and die, which is what this widow was doing, this is not a random lesson on giving. Jesus looked on the widow giving her last two pennies with anger. Anger at this apostate system that would devour this poor woman. 
We aren't told anything about her heart, the heart disposition of the widow. We're not told if there was anything honorable in what this widow did. We don't know her desires. We don't know if she longed for and waited for Messiah. We have no idea of her inner motives. The only thing we do know about her attitude is that she had completely given up. We know that she had been horribly victimized by a system so wicked that in a very short time, judgment is coming. That no stone is going to stand upon one another. This temple will be destroyed. The gilded symbol of this now apostate religion. And thus we see a great continuity, a threat of continuity in Jesus' last teaching to now. From beware of the scribes, they are consuming widows to seeing the widow. Indeed, even in the beginning of chapter 13, showing the judgment and result of this apostate system, we really have an excellent grasp of what Jesus desired to convey in this, his last public teaching. Well, today we excitedly, we embark on something of a journey. And I call it a journey because I cannot rightly say how long it will take us to swim through the incredible depths of chapter 13. We have titled this series very simply, Last Things. And contained in Mark 13, we see what is known in Scripture as the Olivet Discourse. Named, of course, by the location by which it's given, the Mount of Olives. And the subject by Jesus, as you can guess, is last things. We would call this the study of the study of this ecclesiology, right? Or eschatology, excuse me. Eschaton, right? Meaning study of last things. And while this area of theology is not as important as, say, Christology, right? The study of the, the person and nature of Christ or, or soteriology, the study and the doctrine of salvation, it remains vital. And not only is it an area of curiosity for most people, right? By, by nature, we, we all want to know what comes next, right? What comes next? But it carries immense practical implications for how we live our everyday lives, now, this journey through chapter 13 will be deeper than some of you may have gone on these topics, but rest assured, we will not have begun to plumb the depths of these incredible truths. Understand that within this chapter, we see raised, whether directly or tangentially, we see such topics as the destruction of the temple, the rapture, the tribulation, the antichrist, the false prophet, the second coming of Christ, the new heavens, the new earth, the millennial kingdom, huge, huge topics all by themselves, let alone trying to fit this ocean into a Sunday teacup. But this journey through these topics is not meant to be the end for us. I pray this spur you on to greater study and greater depths of knowledge as we look forward to what is to come. Now, before we begin, I want to share a few words about my approach to these wonderful topics. Now, there's a great deal of opinions and even controversy regarding many areas of these scriptures. It does not relieve us of our duty to study and understand them to the best of our ability. Now, as I've watched and listened to teachings on this subject throughout the years, I've noticed two what, what I believe to be errors in how these difficult subjects are presented to the flock. Now, on one hand, you I've seen the egalitarian approach more to teaching these things, right? To say, for example, the millennium, 
Is it figurative or is it literal? Now, some approach this topic by giving you the full buffet, right? By saying, look, I, I'm just going to present you with all the competing theories with a, a level hand, and I'm going to let you pick one if you haven't already, right? Pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, here they all are. Here's the pros and cons. Rapture of the church, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Here's the competing theories. I'm going to give them to you all without bias, and you pick one. Now, while I understand the desire to present all points of view, right, to be even-handed in all these positions, because they've all, all of them have been held by intelligent, orthodox men and women throughout the ages. We are still called to lead the flock. We're called to study with conviction to the best of our ability. So for that reason, I find weakness in the equality of all views presentation to just put it all on the plate and let the flock figure it out approach. However, on the other side of that pendulum is the, maybe the pastor or teacher that has a real bee in his bonnet for the topics of end times, of eschatology, right? They spend their entire time trying to convince the flock of, that his position is the right one. Some of you may have met these in your life that have really quite an obsession with matters of eschatology, right? Every sermon finds some way to weave in a particular view on matters of eschatology. Now, this also carries with it some inherent dangers and pitfalls. So how do we intend to present these matters? I intend to preach this text the same way that I have preached every other text since Mark 1.1. And that is within the bounds of the contextual, historical, grammatical meaning of the text. Laboring always to understand what is obscure in light of what is clear. And to understand what is partial in, light of view as, of, in view of what is complete. So do I have a heartfelt and reasoned positions concerning these sometimes controversial subjects? Of course I do. Right? And you should expect a Christian to have those. Yet I will endeavor to present those harder topics with conviction and humility. Knowing that I have dear brothers in the Lord who share differing views on such challenging areas of Scripture. Because, beloved, while Scripture is infallible and perfect, there is not a perfect or an infallible interpreter of that Scripture. And I am one of them. And as we've said, we've come upon what is known as the Olivet Discourse. Technically speaking, that begins at verse 5, but this is really the lead up. And you can find these words of our Lord also recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, as well as Luke 21. And thus we see this incredible teaching contained in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, which really gives us such a, a rich and full view of what Jesus imparted to his disciples concerning all that is to come. And as we launch into this journey that I pray is encouraging and impactful for you, I pray that it raises our affections for Christ, that living in light of his return causes us to be a different people, that knowing we serve a victorious king would give us a boldness and a confidence in shaky worlds, that the fulfillment of prior promises and prophecies would fuel your faith in the promises that are yet to come. That there were a thousand prophecies of his first coming, but there are two thousand of his second coming. That he who has promised it is faithful and true. That he will come again. 
that justice and mercy will flow as rivers, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, how then ought we to live? Understand, beloved, the entire point of Jesus' response to his disciples in this chapter. The entire point of understanding last things and eschatology is not to satiate or satisfy the human desire to know what comes next. It is meant to encourage and to build you up in the faith and in your obedience to Christ. That's the point. So in light of what has happened, in light of what is coming, how then shall we live? How then should our worship and praise rise? How then should we strive for obedience and holiness, knowing that we live in an earnest expectation for his return? And as we approach chapter 13, Jesus' teaching we are about to encounter is the longest response of Jesus to any question in Scripture. And that seats this recording in a very special place. It is an abundance of jewels in one stream, unlike anywhere else in the Gospels. So this morning, I want us to take a 40,000-foot overview of the map of the journey that awaits us. I want us to hear in totality Jesus' response as the disciples would have heard it. Indeed, how Peter related to his sermons in Rome to Mark, right? And how Mark recorded that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit with such distinguished sequence of teaching by our Lord. Now, we don't always do this for our smaller bits of Scripture we usually take, but this morning as we look at this beginning, as we take our 40,000-foot overview, if you have your Bibles or if you have one under the pew in front of you, grab that Bible now. Grab that Bible. And I wonder if we might all stand as we read the longest response of our Savior ever given to a question so please rise if you're able, turn to Mark 13, turn to Mark 13 in your scriptures as we read this incredible chapter. If you can follow along in your own Bibles, I'll read Mark 13. And as he was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will mislead many. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pains. But see to yourself, for they will deliver you to the courts. And you will be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And when they lead you away, delivering you up, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. And brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. 
But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And the one who is on the housetop must not go down or get in or or get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. And unless the Lord have shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, here he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show you signs and wonders in order to lead you astray, if possible, even the elect. But as for you, see, I have told you everything in advance. But in those days after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Now learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. Even so, you know, when you see these things happening, recognize that he is near right at the door. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. See to it, keep on the alert, for you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey, who leaving his house and giving authority to his slaves, each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you sleeping. And, I, and what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Please be seated. Wow. Woo. <laughs> what a roadmap. I hope you are as excited as I am to explore such incredible events, past, present, and future. So with that, beloved, there's no time like the present to dive in. Let's look to our text this morning. I won't reread our portion for today as we have just done so. However, we will be looking to verses 1 and 2 this morning of this incredible exchange. That's Mark 13, 1 through 2. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are, well, nearly overwhelmed to read this, your longest answer to a question in all the words your Holy Spirit has chosen to record for us. And Lord, it is much and it is deep and Lord, we are desperate for your discernment and your guidance in such matters. Lord, we desire to see your word rightly. We desire to apply it to our lives rightly this morning. Lord, we ask that you would cause this word to go down deep. We ask that it would find good soil. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, in 17 B.C., 
that's 17 years before the birth of Christ. Herod the Great, he was a political animal. He was an ambitious ruler and a master builder, really. And he sought to garner for himself the accolades and the loyalty of the people he had been given charge over. And thus he proposed an expansion of the original second temple, which was the one to be built under the leadership of Zerubbabel, which we learned about that just recently in adult Sunday school. Now what pastor can pass up that opportunity for a plug? If you're not in the habit of joining us for Sunday mornings at 945 for our adult Sunday school, do come. It is a wonderful time of fellowship and deep learning. We've just launched into our new season, so perfect time to dive right in. All right, there's my plug. Right, Herod the Great. So after agreeing to not tear down anything, right, this was a political negotiation with, with the Jews, right, not to tear down anything, to keep its same dimensions, and in its width, that was true. He did actually end up lengthening it, but they agreed to let him build it. This is the largest building project to date. Over 10,000 workers handpicked for their expertise. So this was a massive undertaking, right? Now, of course, the heart of Herod had no allegiance to Yahweh, to the Lord, but really he desired a monument unto himself. All right, let the silly Jews worship their God in there, but they will know that I built it, and it will even bear my name, and I'll have eternal favor with these people by restoring such a thing to them. I mean, it bears exposing not only the apostasism, that apostasy that, that, Judah, that Judaism was in Jesus' day, as we've already done numerous times, but also the very heart of one who built the very place that this largely apostate worship would take place in. It was corrupt from the outset, and we know that. Now, did faithful, Messiah-expectant believers still use the temple? Did they still go in faithfulness? Well, we know what they did. We know that they did, right? Many did. Think of Simeon. Think of Jesus himself. But we know what's coming, don't we? we know, we're going to talk about more than the temple itself as we move along, right? Some of its more amazing features in construction. But let us open with verse 1. What do we see? Verse 1, and as he was going out of the temple, we must pause there. I wanted to move beyond that, but I simply couldn't. For the first time in a long time, the word of truth was heard within the walls of his father's house. For the last few days, its owner was present in the home. The very one who was willing to receive worship from followers in the Gospels, thus declaring his divinity, was present and was preaching and teaching in this very place. Imagine the true object of your worship being present among you and not knowing it. But even more tragic, imagine the object of that worship leaving. Now, because we know both where he is heading, the Mount of Olives is east of the temple, right? And we know the flow of the temple. We know that Jesus likely left out of the east gate. Now, this sets off all sorts of imagery. Right? One can't be helped but be drawn back to Ezekiel 10.19. When what else departed from the east gate of the former temple? When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them. And they stood still at the entrance of the east gate 
of the Lord's house and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. We see here the Shekinah presence of the Lord also departed the temple out of the east gate. Hebert writes, quote, Solomon's temple has been the resting place of the Shekinah glory of God. But just prior to the destruction by Nebuchadnezzar, the glory of the Lord departed the Holy of Holies and progressively, step by step, left the temple complex. Close quote. So let us consider John who wrote that in Jesus we beheld the glory of God. So just as the glory of God departed the east gate in Ezekiel, so now the glory of God departs out of the east gate in Mark. Beloved, I pray the beautiful continuity of Scripture grows your affection and your surety for all it contains. God has kept his word and he continues to protect and to preserve his word. All of this is going to be accomplished. Now, ironically, both times the glory departed the temple, both would soon thereafter be destroyed. Now, back to our text, verse 1. One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Indeed, now, a bit about this temple, as we mentioned, Herod did not extend the temple itself, but he did extend the, the temple mount on Mount Moriah, right? They're off of Mount Moriah. Now, we could go on forever talking about the engineering marvel that this was, but to grasp the full application of this text, we must grasp its grandeur. We have to do that. Now, outside, you had the royal porches called Solomon's Portico. And it held up 37 foot high, carved one solid piece of marble. It was so thick that three men linked arm to arm could barely go around it. And the cornerstones, the angle stones, 20 to 40 feet long, weighing over 100 tons each. Modern engineers still have no idea how they move these things. But most notable, besides the, the beautiful ashlar stones that were carved out of gleaming white limestone, were the walls. This polished limestone to make it almost marble. But even more impressive, covered in gold. Specifically, the eastern wall. How much gold? How much gold? Well, when the sun would rise over the Mount of Olives in the morning, which is east of the temple... You couldn't even look directly at the temple. The glare, the shine was too bright. It was like looking into the sun. Can you imagine that? This was the center of the world for these people. Jewish historian Josephus wrote that it was immensely opulent. He compared the temple to a beautiful snow-capped mountain. Wow. Well, back to our text, we see now in verse 2, verse 2, Jesus responded to this exclamation, this statement by one of the disciples. What does Jesus say, verse 2? And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. 
Well, now, because the next verse shows them sitting on the Mount of Olives, they had likely left out of the east gate, as we said, and they're walking toward the Mount of Olives here in verse 2. It's likely dusk now. We know all that's happened on this Wednesday, right? It's been a very full day, very likely dusk by now. And we know that Jesus is staying where? He's staying in Bethany, which is where they would be walking toward. So that's walking across what is now known as the Kidron Valley. Today, if you go there, I've been down in this valley probably three or four times. It's, it's very steep in some areas due to erosion between the two. But in Jesus' day, it was much more shallow. It was very passable on foot. So it's dusk, and they're walking toward the Mount of Olives, which is also the way toward Bethany, depending on the footpath they took. And one of the disciples has looked back at this magnificent building over so much that's happened over the last three days. Just think of all they've witnessed over the last three days there. He just says, look at that place. I can't imagine the glimmering white limestone, the marble and gold, even as the sun sets, the beauty of it. And what does Jesus say? You see these great buildings. Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now hang on. Have you seen the size of those stones? Tell an Egyptian that the great pyramid will be torn down stone from stone. Impossible. Improbable. And by the way, why? <laughs> we know it's apostate. We've witnessed the last three days. Boy, we've witnessed the last three years with you. But can't we just reform it? <laughs> why tear it down? Why would you tear it down? Wouldn't you want it for your own kingdom when you come to reign? All these could be questions that were rattling around in there. But we'll get to the true matter, heart of the matter as we look at verses 3 and 4 next week. But we must first recognize what a, really a very bold, very brash, almost crazy sounding statement this would be to a first century Jew. Right? The temple was the center of the universe. Life would be unimaginable without its shining in the morning sun. It couldn't be. All of Israel travels miles, traveled miles to her for Passover. But beloved, the words of Christ are true. Judgment delayed is not judgment denied. Only 37 years after Christ ascended back into heaven, a Jewish revolt occurred beginning around A.D. 66. And the local Roman procurator who, who ruled over Judea, he started stealing silver from the temple when tax revenues got low. And the uproar, of course, grew and grew, and finally he sent in an army and killed 3,600 Jews to quell this budding rebellion. Now, what happened? Of course, that only stoked it further, right? The rebellion spread all over Judea to Galilee. And many attempts were made by various generals and Caesars to put down the rebellions. The Jewish people knew how to fight. And in fact, the Jerusalem was under siege for quite some time by now, right, fighting off the Romans, but they were isolated. They were very cut off by this point, surrounded by the Romans. In fact, there's a recording of even the wife of the high priest in Jerusalem searching the street for crumbs. The people were trapped inside, and they died of plague and starvation, 
Now add to that, during that time, Rome was developing new war machines, right? They were developing battering rams and boulder slings to hit the walls. That's what all this was being developed. And eventually, the first wall fell. Then the second wall fell. Then finally, the third inner wall fell. And everybody inside that was able ran to take refuge in the last place they could, the temple. And coming through the gates to the end this once and for all was Roman general Titus. Now it's said that Titus actually wanted to spare the temple. In fact, he gave an edict that it be so. Don't touch it. It's too beautiful. But his men were angry. His men had lost friends and comrades in this contentious and continuous siege. They wanted revenge. And the best target? Burn the temple. Burn it. So that's what they did. They did it by building wood scaffolding on both sides of the walls, all the way to the top, packing the scaffolding full of this flammable debris, and they lit it on fire. Now, I spent a good deal of time this week, I might be kind of a nerd, researching what impact fire has on this local limestone. Perhaps that would give us a bit more insight into how this destruction and burning would have occurred and what it would have looked like. Well, it turns out that very high heat would simply cause this local type of Tyronean limestone to just become very crumbly. Okay, that makes sense. But we also know that the fire could only penetrate so deep. Yes, it would have burned and crumbled the outer few layers, but these walls were 17 feet thick or more in some areas. And Jesus said, not one stone would be left upon another. So fire alone would not have done this. So what happened? What actually caused not one stone to be left upon another in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD? Well, our text says, if you look closer, that they will be torn down. If you've burned the temple as they did, it's effectively destroyed, right? It's, it's crumbled all around. It's unusable. The job was really done. So besides the satisfaction of raising it to the ground, as Romans would want to do, why do this? Beloved, what was the entire eastern wall covered in? Gold. What happens to gold in high heat? It melts. And so it did. All this magnificent gold that would have weighed in the tons would have melted and seeped into all the cracks of all the stones. So how do you get all that gold? you got to make sure that not one stone is left upon another. And indeed, today, beloved, not one stone is left upon another. Even the stones that remain are merely foundation and footing stones for the temple not the temple itself. In fact, recorders who came afterwards said the destruction was so complete, there was no evidence that something had ever even been there. All the stones were thrown down into the Kidron Valley. And that also brings a question, perhaps from our more inquisitive, perhaps those who have been to Jerusalem, many in here have, what is the one place we're all sure to visit? The Wailing Wall, Right? The western wall, often thought to be part of the temple. It's still standing. Does this make scripture false? Did Jesus not mean it literally? Was he simply speaking in generalities that not one stone would be left upon another? 
So what about the Western Wall? Does the existence of the Wailing Wall mean this prophecy was not fulfilled in 70 A.D.? Well, that wall that we so famously see as a landmark in Jerusalem was not part of the temple. It was a retaining wall that was built during Herod's expansion. Nor was it a building, which was what Jesus was referencing. Do you see these buildings, Jesus said. So the western wall would not even be seen from there. It was not a building, nor was it part of the temple. It was just a retaining wall. In other words... Trust the words of Jesus. Take him at his word. What comfort might that bring to saints in a battle-weary world? That we can take this to the bank. Now I point this out not to give you a geography lesson on the Temple Mount, but so that we might read our Bibles correctly. Jesus meant exactly what he said. He doesn't speak in allegories. He doesn't speak in generalities often. He speaks specifically and literally. If not one stone will be left upon another, that is what it means. It is the plain reading of Scripture. Now, many of you will be familiar with the concept of types and anti-types in Scripture, right? Now, type is a, is a prophetic symbol, right? It's a representation of something that is yet to come. And the anti-type, of course, is the later fulfillment of that prophecy, like we read in Matthew, for example, right? Jesus said, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, there's your type, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. There's the anti-type. There's the fulfillment. Right? There's hundreds of examples of these throughout Scripture. And what you have in the destruction of the temple can be known as a type. What you have in the end of the age is the anti-type. In other words, like we see in many other places in scriptures with types and anti-types, the destruction of the temple is a foreshadowing. It is a type of the destruction that is to be that is to come, that is fulfilled at the end of the age. And thus we see the fulfillment of verses 1 and 2 in the year 70 AD. Yet the destruction continues to point forward. Do you understand that? While the destruction of the temple would be a matter of eschatology for the disciples, right? Of future events for the disciples. It is partially history for us in that it already occurred. And yet the destruction of the temple is eschatological for us as well as it points to the ultimate and the final destruction. Just as the temple was burned and toppled, so will the earth be burned. Peter tells us that the earth and its elements will melt. They'll be burned up, making the way for a new Jerusalem. Now that is the dynamic about Mark 13 or Luke 21 or Matthew 24 and 25, indeed all of Revelation. Looking forward, what we can see what we can see, what we're allowed to see, we can see with great clarity. But there are certain things that will be to us as the temple would have been to those before. Right? Looking back, Jesus' words make perfect sense. So that's what that meant. There will be some things that we look back on from eternity forward as we watch all of this being consummated, and we're going to be amazed. 
Think of the hundreds of prophecies concerning the coming of Messiah. Right? Think about it. Off, we have these often shadowy threads right, running through all of the Old Testament, pointing to a future king for the people of Israel, pointing to a future perfect sacrifice for the priests of Israel. They had all sorts of ideas about how they thought this Messiah thing was going to work out. Most thought he would be a military leader who would conquer Israel's enemies, right? But they were wrong. They were all wrong. We can look back now and see what the prophets were talking about. We can look back at Isaiah 53, and when we read, He was bruised for our sins, and by His stripes we are healed, it makes perfect sense to us in hindsight, doesn't it? But I guarantee you that the people reading Isaiah's prophecy or a Davidic psalm did not look at that and go, ah, so our Messiah is going to be whipped and crucified. Got it. Of course not. In fact, what ended up happening to Jesus, what Jesus told his disciples time and time again would happen to him, that he would be whipped and crucified, it was an abhorrent thought to his disciples. They couldn't understand. This made no sense. This did not jive with anything they'd ever been taught. No, it took the reality of the event unfolding to see it clearly. And so it will be with the second coming of Christ. And with some matters of eschatology, honestly. If it was this way for the first coming of Christ, for the Messiah, for the Jews, for Messiah, why shouldn't we assume that the second coming of Christ will be any different? It will. Now, I would love to say that putting together our eschatology, our doctrine of end times, is just a matter of putting Legos together, right? It all fits together perfectly. One plus one equals two. And some of us would sure like it to be that neat and tidy. I know I sure would. But the truth is, it's not putting together Legos where it all fits neatly together. We will see that Mark 13 is not a Rubik's Cube for us to figure out on this side of eternity. In truth, it's much more like a Venn diagram. You ever seen one of those? All the concentric circles that overlap one another at different spots, different intersections, but they always form a center somewhere. The circles coalesce with one another. And at the center, at the epicenter of it all, Christ will appear. The thing that we only see dimly now will become apparent to us, like turning that kaleidoscope. Beloved, I know we've thrown a lot on your plate this morning. It's a lot to take in, and if you can believe it, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of these topics. Now, I was looking through some many old notes that I've written through the years on these subjects and preparation for this season of eschatology before us, and I came across a note of reminder. Now, I don't know if I wrote this or if I was quoting someone else. I tried to find the source and couldn't, so perhaps it was just my writing. But it was a reminder what the point of this entire chapter of Mark is. What is the point of Mark 13? What is the point of spending the next many weeks diving into these topics? Mark 13 is saying this, that the God who initiated time, who has broken into time in the person of Jesus, is the one who controls the end of time. The transformation of all that is now into all that will be. And why does that matter? Why does that matter? 
Beloved, the Christian conviction is not simply some view of Jesus coming to live in my heart. It's not merely a a how-to guide on individual salvation. But the Christian conviction transforms the entire relationship in the way we view the complete totality of the human existence. Which means it matters how it ends. God is further revealing to us who he is and who we are as man by how it ends. How many of his glorious attributes are revealed in his final dealings with his creation. And we live in light of that end, in joyful expectation of that end. Yet, as we saw with the temple, as the type and anti-type, The world goes on in its apostasy, in its self-love, in its open sin, as if judgment delayed is judgment denied. But we've read the end of the book. And thus we plead with men and women and children to be reconciled to a holy God through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, that we might know him and love him and can look forward and toward the culmination of future events, not with trepidation or anxiety, but secure in our Father's love, standing on a firm foundation, standing on a solid rock. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we begin to wade into these deep waters and these texts, Lord, one might be tempted to anxiety or to trepidation about what we see in and what has happened, and what will happen, and what is currently happening. But Lord, great and precious are your promises toward us. Lord, that you are faithful toward your church, that you love her. Lord, that you have placed us on good ground. Lord, that you have placed us on a firm foundation. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would keep each one until we can meet again. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.